Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Martin Frick, who is the director of the Global Office of the World Food Program in Berlin. Today, we're going to be having a great conversation about the current food crisis, how it relates to climate change and biodiversity, and also trying to move some of those social drivers. So, you know, perhaps doing a little bit of a bottom-up empowerment and embracing the notion that perhaps the problem is just too big to be left to negotiators on the international diplomatic stage. Uh, There's definitely a gap to be filled uh, between the understanding that diplomats have and the realities on the front lines. So we're going to hear a little bit about that as well. And we're just going to have a wonderful conversation today with Martin. So Martin, without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. It's great to see you again. I think it's been a few months since last we spoke. You're out there in Berlin. I'm here in the UK. So not a, not a great deal of time difference. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the World Food Program. We've had some interesting folks from the WFP on the show before and covered nutrition as well, but give us your take. Well, the World Food Program is the world's largest humanitarian organization. We have about 24,000 colleagues um, all over the world, particularly in the toughest regions of the planet. And those people cooperate with almost a thousand non-governmental organizations. So the reach is enormous and you find the world food program typically in places where you don't find anyone else so if everything goes belly up if people are starving that's where we come in Mm, fascinating stuff now we do have food crisis it's difficult to open any newspaper or watch any news show where we're not facing that Uh, food crisis isn't just because of the conflict hotspots that we have on this planet It's a great deal to do with climate as well, right? That's right. And if you look at the development of the last four years, things have changed in a dramatic way, really in a dramatic way. If you remember in 2015, heads of states from all over the planet agreed on the sustainable development goals. And number two prominently was to abolish hunger, not to bring the numbers down, but to really aim at zero hunger, which is unprecedented. That was possible because the number of hungry people have been constantly going down since the Second World War. And that despite the fact, obviously, that population numbers were going up. So people were positive. And at that time, we described hunger as the biggest fixable problem of humanity. And now look where we are. In 2019, the number of acutely hungry people, so the people who actually need the World Food Program to help them was 135 million. And by the end of 2021, that number was already 276 million people. And that was largely the COVID pandemic that has interrupted supply chains. And then in February 2022, Russia's attack on Ukraine has overnight put the fifth largest grain exporter offline. And that sent shockwaves around the planet. And today we are at approximately 345 million people being acutely food insecure and counting. And as you said, 
I had a whole variety of reasons. And if I may, I would unpack some of those reasons. Well, firstly, and still the major driver of hunger is conflict. We have twice as many conflicts as we had 10 years ago. Old conflicts do not go away or they flare up again, think Sudan. New conflicts are being added, like the war against Ukraine. And every conflict is triggering hunger locally, but it's also putting a stress on the global system. And then I mentioned already the COVID pandemic. Immediately, the COVID pandemic has interrupted supply chains. Obviously, when people are in lockdown, you cannot work as you did before. But COVID also did something else. COVID costed an absolute fortune. And that sums of money that goes in the trillions, really, um, have pushed X many developing countries into a deep debt crisis. And that debt crisis has two phases. One is domestic inflation. More than 60 countries on the planet with inflation rates and staple foods of 15% and more, sometimes much more, and also melting currencies as the world market is factoring in US dollars. It just simply becomes very, very expensive for many countries to purchase dollars first and then buy food on the global market for a lot of money. And the third reason, and that comes every year stronger, is climate change. We have currently in the Horn of Africa a hunger crisis with 22 million people affected. And that's a function of six failed rainy seasons consecutively. Now imagine what that does to agriculture, to animal husbandry. It's absolutely devastating. And in a very uncertain time, one thing that we really know for certain is that the impact of climate change is only getting worse. Mm. So we're just about six, six and a half years away from 2030. That big, big uh, date where all of these uh, 17 UN SDGs are meant to be achieved. Uh, surely you can't be optimistic. Well, it is quite staggering if you think that we are seven harvest seasons away from this big 2030 moment. I'm hopelessly optimistic, always am that we can achieve the SDGs. And I do believe that looking at food as a system with all the aspects of food is maybe the key instrument to deal with the complexity that we need to deal with in order to achieve the sustainable development goals. Because if you look at food as a system, it's pretty much the biggest everything. It's the biggest employer on the planet. It's the biggest impact on biodiversity. It's the biggest consumer of water. It's the biggest source of climate emissions. So to me, it's obvious that we need to address food systems and transform our food systems to achieve the sustainable development goals. And it's quite staggering in the climate process, for example, that it took roughly a quarter of a century before the climate negotiations really started first timidly and now increasingly in more substance to speak about food systems. Now, on that, on that thrust about food systems, and you touched about the climate negotiators, I remember you were mentioning to me, we need a sort of bottom-up uh, approach. You know, we're, we're empowering uh, 
where we're empowering folks. And that, uh, you know, the problem is just too big for negotiators, <laughs> which I thought was a very interesting remark. And you yourself have had ample experience in that space as a negotiator. Well, yeah, I am, I've been to many of the climate conferences. They are called COPS, C-O-P, Conference of Parties, which means state parties. But if I give you the example of the last one in Sharm el-Sheikh almost a year ago, there were 48,702 people. And I know that precisely because my friend is the organizer, the logistics person of the climate negotiations. 48,702 people. Imagine that. It's just a huge industry fair in which those people who the conference is about, the state representatives, are a stark minority. And I find it staggering that... Um, it's almost as if in the climate negotiations, the inner core of the negotiations itself are dragging behind the energy of all the people who are doing the pilgrimage <laughs> to the climate conference that can bring and do bring so much to the table. You got youth activists there, you got indigenous representatives, you got chief executives of major companies, leading scientists, faith leaders, basically everyone from all walks of global society. And yet everything is focusing on the negotiations itself. And <clears throat> as some countries obviously have quite strong interests there, it's slow to move forward. So my hope here would be that people do understand that meaningful climate action is possible already today. You don't need to wait for a global agreement. You don't need for your government to force you to put solar panels on the roof. You can do that right away. And one of the things that people can decide and do decide every day is their diets. It's quite simply what you buy in your groceries, what you order in a restaurant, how you deal with food, how mindful you are about not wasting food. These are all climate action points and they can, can be done right away. And I would be hoping that the climate movement, which really is gaining traction, actually driven by young people, and I think their influence, their positive influence, is one of the biggest good news in all of the global fight against climate change. Um, but I would hope that all this climate activism is not a divisive point, but people do understand that, you know, young people protesting on the streets or even taking acts of civil disobedience are actually working for the common good. It's not that they are seeking profile or that, you know, they're out of control. They show concern and they show action for a concern that matters for everyone on this planet. Any suggestions on how to empower uh, that next generation? And I know you, you, you do have some thoughts on this. Uh, let's, let's go into that space a little bit. I do. I think that, you know, people in the real world live in communities and these communities are manifold. I'm a member of a United Nations organization, so I'm dealing with my colleagues. I have my professional contacts. At the same time, I have a, I'm a father. I have a son who goes to high school and the parents of this high school are, of course, another peer group of mine. I'm a hobbyist musician, so I know people who do music. And um, so 
every human being is working and operating in a multidimensional space. And my hope would be that we manage to activate these communities so that people can discuss climate issues in that frameworks. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, you're playing in an Umba band in Bavaria or you're being a reggae musician in London. Um, it's very different communities. But the thing that they have in common, I believe, is we need a functional planet in order to live our lives. And so climate change should be a big uniting force, not a political divisive issues when, in fact, you know, it affects every single one of eight billion people on this planet. And Martin, you're, you know, you're privileged in a way because you're working at this uh, massive UN organization, Global Footprint. What are some of the differences that you're seeing regionally uh, in terms of mobilizing resources, getting people enthused behind this? Because you, you, you have that ability to step back and look at it from a global perspective. Well, I had the privilege to, to play a role in the Global Food System Summit that took place in 2019 to 2021. And you witness many of the conversations that are highly controversial. One of them is the endless question around meat and animal protein. And so you got urban elites from rich countries making veganism, making vegetarianism popular. And it makes sense in that context because feeding big European or North American cities with massive amounts of industrial produced meat is obviously wrong. Is that something you can translate to um, developing countries? Well, I don't think so, because in much, in many parts of sub-Sahara Africa, you got children who are children who are wasted and stunted because they don't have enough protein. You have people where the traditional lifestyle, like the Maasai, is animal husbandry. And their way of raising cattle is not bad at all. There is nothing wrong in terms of biodiversity or climate in the way they're they raising beef. There's indeed ways of producing meat and producing animal protein that are totally in line with nature. You can even rebuild soils with managed grazing, but that's pretty much the opposite of the models that we are having for industrial meat production. So it's those paradigms, or so often people have in mind assumptions where they don't even are aware that these assumptions are assumptions. For example, everybody would agree with you if you say, well, if you bring irrigation to the desert, you can grow vegetables or whatever in, in the desert. Very few people know that it's not only that irrigation brings vegetation, but it's also that vegetation brings precipitation, which means that it is absolutely possible to make rain. It is possible to turn desert with mixed methods, and you know animals are a part of it, back to a functioning ecosystem. And that recognition alone, I've seen it many times how people look at slides that you show them with actual pictures before and five years later, and they always think you you confuse the slides and you show them the you know the park landscape before and the desert after, but you can reverse that. So I think there is an 
incredible amount of misunderstanding, particularly between North and South, because everybody is judging the world by their experience. And that experience is fundamentally different, whether you grow up in Somalia or in Lisbon, right? <laughs> um, so that makes a, makes a big difference. And you know that's one of the key problems in the United Nations, A, to understand that the global reality is very different than what you experience when you grow up, particularly when you're coming from an OECD country. And then, of course, it's all the burden of the past, all the colonial um, experience that was traumatic for so many countries of this planet. And it's still there as a background noise. So that's one of the reasons why it's difficult to find common ground. Is, it, is there a good understanding, would you say this, a thorough understanding that the negotiators might have in mind of the realities on the ground? Or is there is there scope to perhaps uh, fill a gap? Oh, um, there is a big scope for that. And there is a tremendous need for good diplomacy. And you know, currently with the wars that I mentioned earlier, it also shows you the constant failure of diplomacy. And any good diplomacy must be based on empathy. It starts with listening. It starts with trying to walk in the other party's shoes to understand why that person is arguing, how she is arguing, and what the points are that this person does. And it's, you know, not a lack of understanding, but it's maybe just a different vantage point and a different perspective in which to argue. And that is where we would need skillful diplomacy. Maybe that's uh, that's part of the curriculum they should be enhancing when, when folks are trying to uh, get into the foreign service. Or <laughs> It's interesting because in the last decades, you've seen a shift in what is required more and more to what is being framed as hard qualification, so that you're really an excellent lawyer or um, an economist with fantastic no grades from university. But I think, you know, in diplomacy, you have also a very dedicated skill set, but it's slightly different. You need generalists. You need people who understand quite a bit of many different issues, but are not necessarily the super expert for this and that. And you need people with emotional intelligence, with listening skills, with mediation skills, with the possibility to sort of demine a difficult situation. And, you know, sometimes you meet colleagues who are brilliant in doing that and sometimes not so much. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, you have a distinguished track record as well within the world of diplomacy. Uh, give us a little bit of insight into that. I'd love to find out more. Well, I guess my two really highlights, which I happily remember, was the founding of the United Nations Human Rights Council, which is the highest instrument of the United Nations for human rights, um, and the successor to the Human Rights Commission that was founded in 1948, amongst others by Eleanor Roosevelt, who was one of the negotiators at that time. And it was fascinating because at the time of Eleanor Roosevelt, you had 50 member states of the United Nations. Um, colonialism was still in full bloom, and the countries who founded it 
would largely agree on their way of looking at the world, I would put it. When we were negotiating the Human Rights Council, that number has exploded to 195 or 197 at that time. I don't recall the exact number, but basically fourfold. And now three quarters of this membership of the United Nations that were reflected in a smaller membership of the Human Rights Council came out of this post-colonial experiences. And their take was, who are you to tell us about human rights? And the whole concept of universality of human rights was attacked. And if you put yourself back to 2007, when this was negotiated, there were the human rights violations in Abu Ghraib, there were um, people detained in Guantanamo Bay, and that was being held against Western negotiators, no matter whether you were from the United States or you were, as in my case, a European negotiators. And it was very tough and very emotional negotiations with uh, a very different way of particularly middle-income countries to be at the negotiation table, very confident and really challenging the ways that have been done. And our job was pretty much to say, hey, look, the U Charter of the United Nations and the Universal Declaration on Human Rights are not a Western hobby horse. This is universally agreed. This is basically the basis of humanity. And I found that incredibly important to emphasize on this point because you need to have common values in order to be able as humanity to live and work together. And as we all know, the alternative to a rules-based world is basically the right of the stronger one, which we don't want. Mm. And your trajectory in terms of getting to where you where you are today? Well, <laughs> from there, I moved sites and I started to work with Kofi Annan at that time. Um, that was in the second half of 2007. Um, he retired by the end of 2006 as the Secretary General of the United Nations and built a foundation in Geneva, Switzerland. And I was asked whether I would like to join this foundation as his program director, which was absolutely fascinating. And out of the experience also of the Human Rights Council, we focused on what we called at the time the human face of climate change. Because in 2007, the iconic picture of climate change was the little ice bear on a piece of shell ice. But also the experience of the Human Rights Council with the Maldives running the first re resolution on human rights violations by, by climate change made it obvious to me that we are not only talking about an environmental disaster, we are talking about the biggest threat to our civilization. And so we used the convening power of Kofi Annan and really an all-star set of um, board members, including Mary Robinson, for example, to speak about the human face of climate change. And when we did our first conference, I framed the opening panel um, as climate justice in a shared global ecosphere. 
And Mary Robinson was the moderator of this first panel. Richard Branson sat on this panel and the president of the Maldives. And before the event started, Mary asked me, so what do you mean with climate justice? And I said, well, it's simply the fact that those are most affected who have contributed least to the problem. And Mary Robinson found that so interesting that after the conference, um, she asked me to work with her in building a commission and explore what climate justice actually means. And with a group of ethics professors, we built 10 fundamental points for climate justice, who then became the founding document of Mary Robinson's Foundation for Climate Justice that did invaluable work and helped putting it on the level where it is today. And <laughs> many years later, ironically, I introduced a young woman from Sweden to the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, which was um, Greta Thunberg. And Greta, of course, had made climate justice her thing. And today it is really a unifying force for many young people around the planet and made it all the way up into statements of governments. Must, must be very rewarding to have been at those intersections at those times uh, that are so consequential. Totally was. Um, the bittersweet part of it was back in 2007 and eight when I, you know, started with this concept of climate justice and spoke to big NGOs. I got a lot of beating by big NGOs because they said it's a divisive slogan, climate justice, and you will never see that young people are on the road and chanting climate justice. Well, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating stuff. What are the sort of initiatives that you're seeing right now that you're perhaps very excited about, whether it's within the WFP or just more broadly? Uh, and again, whether it's an intervention, whether it's a movement, what's what's that one thing that perhaps you're, you it's in the back of your mind and you're thinking, you know what, I, I am optimistic because I just see some of these things and the, the sheer potential uh, that I can see in the, in the not too distant future. The one thing that really, I think, is reason for hope is... As we look at our soils of the planet worldwide, they are in miserable shape. You have more than 50% of the world's soils um, in bad shape, basically. Now, if you look at our planet, the biggest surface area of the planet is, of course, oceans. And then you have mountains, you get big cities. So the space for agriculture is very limited indeed. And from this space, the majority of the soils has already tremendously suffered. Now, what gives me hope is it is relatively simple to turn it around, to build soils up and do agriculture that is not conducted like mining, where you exploit nature capital, but you build up nature capital. And if you do that right, and this is something that the World Food Programme does, for example, in Niger, you are actually creating livelihoods for people. You are empowering women because in sub-Saharan Africa, about two-thirds of our farmers are really women. Um, you are creating food security. You're creating sources of income. You bring biodiversity back and you put massive amounts of carbon from the atmosphere back into the soils where it belongs and where it's productive because there is nothing bad about carbon. We 
you know, we are consistent of carbon. When we eat food, we eat carbon. It's just that the carbon cycle is out of whack. And to get this carbon cycle back into the harmonious giving and taking that you have seen on this planet for hundreds of millions of years, that agriculture is key. And the people who can do it are, and that's beautiful, are the bottom billion of this planet. So the perspective that the poorest people on the planet can actually be the force that helps us avoiding the climate crisis, I find absolutely fascinating. Mm. Perhaps a simple question, but uh, for folks who are listening to this who want to become a little bit better informed, better versed in this space, whether it has to do about how to buy the right food or just the whole notion of climate justice, where would you point them to? What's the, that one perhaps website that might be the most useful starting point to uh, to start on that journey of getting better informed? Well, this conversation has many, many aspects. And, you know, with all criticism on Twitter recently, um, the hashtags climate justice and food systems carry you a long way and also make you find my own Twitter account where I try to put all the interesting stuff out there. There's a lot of thinking going on around that. And particularly in food systems, there is amazing new research. Um, when you read it, that A is an eye-opener and B makes you think about um, how can it be that something as essential as food has been for such a long time so little research. You know, only now we basically understand that everything that's happening in the ecosystem of soils, which are the most biodiverse systems on the planet, are pretty much mirrored inside ourselves as human being, as our digestive mechanisms. Basically, we are hosting billions of microorganisms inside ourselves. And then it's little surprising that healthy soils create healthy human beings because, you know, that systems, system is designed to mirror itself. So that kind of understanding also brings you in a different category of thinking and valuing food and understanding also what enormous price we are paying for seemingly cheap food. Uh, you mentioned those hashtags. What's your Twitter handle? It's at cmfrick, at c-m-f-r-i-c-k. Excellent. Now, before you go away, you have to give us a key takeaway. What's that one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Um, I think what is widespread today is that people do understand the climate crisis and they feel overwhelmed and they feel powerless. I think for every individual, you are not. There are very simple things you can do right away. And your food choices is definitely something you can do. Um, simple acts like just composting your food waste, your potato peels, what have you, maybe planting a bit, um, working with a community garden. And the most simple and the most fun thing of all, stop eating alone. Invite a couple of friends. If you're sitting with six or 10 people around the table, it's so much more fun and your food waste goes down dramatically. And maybe you make a bit more effort into cooking. And I wouldn't know anything more fun and more human than sitting around the table and sharing a meal. I absolutely love it. And on that great note, Martin, thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. 
absolute pleasure seeing you again. Perfect, and that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Martin Frick, Director of the Global Office of the World Food Program in Berlin. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable folks in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I will catch you this coming Monday.